Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We've got someone very exciting for you today. We've got Kathy Yarbrough, who studied at the College of Charleston, where she worked as a graduate assistant for the Low Country Digital History Initiative. Creating Digital History exhibits all about unrepresented South Carolina history, and we are going to be talking a bit about that today. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. We're very, very, very excited. So whereabouts are you at the moment? I am currently sheltering in place in Seattle, Washington. Uh, how's it going out there? Um, I'm pretty lucky. The community I live in is taking everything super seriously, like very mask oriented, very space oriented. So I'm feeling very, very fortunate to be in that situation. Amazing. Let's move on because we want to get to the history, of course. So yes. let's uh, set, we'll set the scene for us first. What was happening in South Carolina in the 19th century post-Civil War? Okay, yeah. So... I think I'm going to start just briefly. I don't want to get too into the weeds, but just from sort of a macro organizational standpoint. So the Civil War ends in 1865. Um, Abraham Lincoln is assassinated in 1865. Um, Andrew Johnson takes over and is now in charge of reconstructing the South. He is not interested in doing so and pretty much begins his vision of reconstruction is pardoning confederates and trying to just get the south back in the union as quickly as possible and just pretend nothing happened which is a disaster and in no way heals from the wounds of um the civil war and slavery so in 1867 congress takes over control control and um we enter the stage of congressional reconstruction so the South is then divided into military districts. And for our story, we are in a military district number two, and it encompasses South and North Carolina, and it's under um, the command of General Daniel Sickles. So in 1868, um, a few months down the road, South Carolina creates a new constitution, a new state constitution. And this is where our story really, really begins, because this constitution in 1868 enfranchises Black men. Um, the constitution was made with the help of 71 Black delegates, some of them formerly enslaved. Many of them were already free before the war. So South Carolina is a really interesting space at this point because the state is a majority black population. The largest population segment of the state of South Carolina in 1870, that's the census data I'm drawing from, was black women. They made up 30% of the population. The second largest segment is black men. They make up 28% of the population. So we have, you know, skipped three years after the Civil War, and Black men are enfranchised, and they begin to craft a radically different state 
than what South Carolina was before the Civil War. Um, so that's for the political spectrum, just sort of on the ground, day to day life. I would describe it as chaotic and for black Americans, hopeful and for white Americans, dismal. Um, there are streams of missionaries and politicians, black, white men and women coming from the north down to the south. Um, the congressional reconstruction that I was talking about that began in 1867 established the Freedmen's Bureaus, which are these giant agencies in order to help rehabilitate and transition formerly enslaved people to freedom. Um and so, yeah, so that's just sort of the general state of state of the union, I would say, in South Carolina in the end of the 1860s. So we're here to talk about women. We so set us a little bit of, scene, of the scene, what it's like for women and what is expected in the time, especially black women. Yeah, so that's a really interesting question and a somewhat frustrating question to answer, but it's also the reason I'm so drawn to this era. This is a period of massive transition for white women and especially for Black women. Um, I'm going to focus more on Black women because that's the area that I'm a little bit more comfortable speaking on. I've done more research on that. But before the Civil War, Black women are basically, and I'm speaking on the enslaved Black women experience, there were plenty, there were a sizable number of free Black women in America. But in an enslaved situation, Black women are not at all allowed to care for their own children. They are caring for their own children, but that's not their number one priority. Their number one priority is at all points serving their white enslavers. So for women after the Civil War, the biggest transition is this new chance to have their labor be for themselves and their own families. Um, and it's a huge change. The way the world, they're all of a sudden able to reprioritize their own children, their own husbands themselves, their labor over this system in which their lives were expected to be dedicated to their white enslavers. Your research concentrates on a group of sisters, a few sisters, uh, called the Roland sisters, and their role in, in politics and things. But before we get to the political side, tell us who were these sisters? Yes, absolutely. So after I just set up what the more um, expansive experience was, we're going to talk about the Rollins sisters who, once again, the reason I was so drawn to them is in pretty much every possible way break with the monolithic narrative of what the experience of Black women were. They are very unique. So the Rollins sisters were born in antebellum, pre-war, um, Charleston, South Carolina, and they were born free. They were the daughters of a wealthy lumber dealer who came from San Domingue, what is present-day Haiti. Um, we don't know really anything about their mother. That's kind of a mystery and sort of something, I guess, to delve into is the fact that studying these women in general is kind of a mystery because 
sources are few and far between. So there's a lot of detective work involved in piecing together who is who, who was born when, and really trying to get their story together. So the oldest sister is Frances. The second sister is Charlotte. She goes by Lottie. And then there is Catherine. She goes by Kate. So the fourth daughter, I call her Louisa. In pretty much any census, she is written down as having a different name from Lavinia to Louise Marie, but I'm going to stick with Louisa. And then the youngest is Florence. Um, my research particularly focuses on Francis and Lottie with some Kate, because they're the three oldest. Um, before the Civil War, they um, go to a French school in Charleston. They're Catholic from Saint-Domingue, Haiti, so they actually speak French as their first language, go to a small day school in um, Charleston, and then their father sends the three eldest daughters north to receive a higher education, um, which is obviously a very, very elite and privileged experience, really for any family in the antebellum South, but especially for a Black family. That is very rare. Um, so after the Civil War, there, the South is, you know, in this giant period of transition, and there is all of a sudden a huge need for teachers um, for free person schools to teach formerly enslaved children. So Francis, Lottie, and Kate all returned to South Carolina where they were born. Francis begins working for the American Missionary Association, um, which is sort of the elite missionary association. You kind of had to have like a connection to be a teacher for this American Missionary Association. And she's in Beaufort, which is um, an island near Charleston in South Carolina. And then Lottie and Kate try to open their own school for free children in downtown Charleston. Um, it's open for about a year. They can never really get sufficient funding. Um, so they sort of abandon that effort and they move to the capital of South Carolina, which is Columbia, South Carolina, um, in the middle of the state. And Francis joins them there within the year. So at this point, it's 1868, and Francis has taken a job working as William Whipper, who is a Republican politician, a Black Republican politician, as his um, clerk and copyist. I would say a quick important note to remember during this episode is the two political parties that we're talking about are nothing like the 2020 Republican and Democratic Party, the Republican Party of 1868 in South Carolina. Once again, I'll, I will be speaking specifically to South Carolina because it does take slightly different shapes throughout the country. But in South Carolina, the Republican Party was the party that allowed Black men to run, and it became the party of furthering newly freed people's rights, representing Black people, allowing them in the party. Um, it was the, the progressive party. The Democratic Party was almost completely white, um, had ties to, at various points in its life during Reconstruction, to the Ku Klux Klan, and then later to the white supremacist paramilitary group, the Red Shirts, which we might get into later. 
So that's where they are in 1868. Do you know, I know this doesn't relate to it at all, but for some strange reason, when you told me that um, they went off and became teachers and tried to open their school, all that's going through my mind is little women. Oh my, oh, okay. This, I'm so happy you said that because listen to how insane this is. So I love little women. Of course, I love Louisa May Alcott. Of course, I always imagine the Rollins sisters as the Southern black version of the March sisters. Oh my goodness. And I have listened to this. This is going to make you scream. There is a newspaper article that notes that in her parlor, Lottie has a copy of a Louisa, or of a, yeah, a Louisa May Alcott book on her desk. Oh, I love that. How awesome and, is that? Oh, my heart. Oh, I, 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 my heart melted when I heard that because that had always been my little pet, you know, theory imagining these sisters because they're really close. They remain close throughout their lives, but they all do sort of different things. And I always, in the back of my mind, sort of thought of them like the March sisters. And then the fact that the reporter noted that she had a copy of Louisa May Alcott, I died. Do you know what? If you write a book about this, you need to put that in and note it because oh, I will yes. buy it just for that little <laughs> anecdote. I love that. Yes. They were also, are you familiar with the Woodhall sisters, Victoria? No. And, so they're just, uh, um, oh my gosh. If you, you want to tell get me now. interesting American women, these women, they were the first female um stockbrokers on wall street they were said to have a, an affair with rockefeller they were um very into free love radical love movement they were unashamed in their efforts to create better public health initiatives to help prostitutes who had contracted contracted syphilis um they were so interesting these women just amazing. And they're living in the same time. They're contemporaries of the Rollins sisters. And Victoria Woodhall, it was a suffragist, but she was kind of outside of the mainstream of suffragists. And she actually was the first woman to run for president in the um, United States. And Victoria, I mean, when I say run for president, it was a wasn't exactly a very successful campaign, but her vice presidential candidate was Frederick Douglass. Um, and so it was, you know, sort of like a political stunt part of the suffrage movement to say that she was running for president. But um, some newspaper reporters called the Rollins sisters the Woodhulls of South Carolina. So I also love that little fact. I think your new book should be called Outside Little Women. <gasps> oh, my God. But, oh, I, there, there are so many possibilities. As you I'm, can tell, I've fallen head over heels in love with this family of women. I love I love your passion. So I really think you should write a book because that would just be absolutely amazing. But listen, let's get back onto the Rolling Sisters. So tell yeah. us, we've gotten to the point of uh, we're joining a political party. Yes. So so how they, did this further on? How do they actually get involved in politics, and why do they get involved right. in politics? Right. So. The why is really tricky to know because we don't have very much writing from them. We have some writing from Frances, who is an amazing writer. She actually published a book, 
I believe it came out in 1868. It might have come out in 1867. Um, but she publishes a biography on a Black Union war hero, Martin R. Delaney, and she publishes it under the name Frank Rollin. And it meet, it, it does pretty well. It sells pretty well. Um, and it comes out years later that it was written by a Black woman, Frances Rollin. Um, so, you know, she had sort of begun entering this political-ish sphere because Delaney enters politics after the war. Um, and then Francis ends up falling in love with and marrying William Whipper, who is such an interesting man. He came down from Pennsylvania, um, Republican politician. He's very fiery. He's very, um, he is sort of the definition of what white Democrats were afraid of, of they called them radical Republicans. And he was seen as very radical during the um, South Carolina convention where they were making a new constitution. He actually makes this super interesting, passionate speech about why women should be enfranchised. And this is in 1868. So incredibly progressive. Um, and the speech is amazing. He's basically like, you guys are all too stupid to realize that women are our equals and a lot of them are actually smarter than us. And one day they will be enfranchised and you're all going to look really bad in history. So he's just kind of amazing. Oh dear. <laughs> yeah. He's like, he's a lot. He's very cool. And it, this is also a really interesting thing though, is their marriage is not like super accepted the sisters who had been raised as these elite women their father had raised them to be very proud of their free elite status they like the 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 two other sisters Lottie and um Kate in a newspaper article you know they say we don't really care about um you know lower class people like Whipper He's Negro and we're French. So there's this interesting distinction. And right now there's a lot coming out about colorism and classism within, you know, really any race, but particularly there's a lot coming out in the um, American community in with black Americans. And, you know, back in 1868, that was very much a thing. So Frances's family wasn't super excited about her marrying Whipper, who's this kind of larger-than-life politician. Um, she, you know, has to kind of beg her dad because the other thing is their courtship was only a month long. So she kind of has to beg her dad, and eventually they he, you know, gives in and lets her marry um, this – he's also older. So it, the the whole thing is just – not scandalous, but it's it's interesting. Um, they were definitely had to have been in love to make this work. But, you know, within a few months even, the uh, sisters have definitely come to terms with and are okay with Whipper, and he becomes their biggest ally um, and becomes really their way into politics. So you've just touched on the political situation in South Carolina at the time. Can you expand on that a little bit? Absolutely. It is it is so interesting. So I'm going to throw some numbers at you. Um, Go for South Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> no, everyone loves numbers. Who doesn't love a number? Okay, so 
South Carolina elected the highest number of African-American black office holders during Reconstruction than any other state in, in America. Um, they elected from the years 1865 to 1877, they elected 310. And what's really amazing about that is 177 of those men have been formerly enslaved. And that is also the highest number of any state. Um, the, uh, th- that had elected formerly enslaved men. The closest state to, um, electing a high number of African Americans was Louisiana and they only elected 200, I think it was like 230. So South Carolina has a sizably large number. And these men are holding a, a and they're all in the Republican Party. And they hold a really diverse range of offices, a lot of local positions, mostly local positions, so, you know, postmaster and different things like that. But the highest rank of a black man, Alonzo Reisner, became lieutenant governor um, wow. and treasurer, secretary of state, Supreme Court justices, state commissioners, speaker of the South Carolina House. They also rep, um, elect the highest number of black congressmen. They elect six black congressmen which is amazing. Um, so you can really see why there was so much white democratic anxiety in South Carolina, because like I touched on at the beginning of this episode, South Carolina is a majority black state. So when black men are enfranchised, they begin electing other black men. And white Democrats, both women and men, a lot of women, um, surprisingly, but men primarily, are terrified that the South Carolina government is actually becoming representative of its population, which means there are more and more black men and they are diminishing white power within the state. Um, so that said, all of that said, what is still really important to remember is that while white Democrats felt a lot of anxiety about the amount of power that black Republicans were gaining in the state, it's important to remember that throughout all of this, there was a lot of political violence. In the, in the beginning, the Klan was very active. There was lynchings, there was murders, you know, pretty prominent black politicians in South Carolina were murdered by the Klan in broad daylight. Um, there was, you know, local everyday violence, which we might get into a little bit more if we talk about freed women's experiences. So, and I mean, Francis Rollin talks about being in a carriage with the governor of South Carolina, who was a white Republican man and her husband, William, and there was an assassination attempt on the governor while she's in the carriage with him. They're going through a park and they hear all these gunshots ring out. And by the time they get out of the carriage, they can't find anyone. And they never figure out, you know, who attempted this assassination. So all of this is to say that while it's really important to focus on the amount of power that African-Americans and Black Americans were able to garner within this South Carolina um, political scene in Reconstruction, it's never far behind that there is white retribution. Um, and while 314 is a very high number of black elected officials, there are still always more white elected officials than black elected officials. Here's a cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm assuming, just, you know, stab the dark here, that white people didn't quite like the changes being made in South Carolina compared to the African-Americans. Because they were positive changes at this point. You would definitely assume correctly. I will say they obviously, Black Americans had white allies um, throughout their history. You know, a large part of the abolitionist movement was led by white Americans alongside the really prominent Black Americans like Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. Um, and so even in Reconstruction South Carolina, there are a lot of white Republicans who are very ready to ally themselves with um, Black Republicans. The vast majority of white South Carolinians were terrified, horrified, disgusted, freaking out, freaking out in violent ways, freaking out in petty, horrible ways. Um, they were not happy. I found this, and, and, and outside of South Carolina, on the national scene, South Carolina is being pointed to by white Americans, non-progressive white Americans, as basically a like everyone be careful or we could turn into South Carolina. Like, look what happens happened in South Carolina. Look at all the power black Americans have amassed there. It became sort of like a cautionary tale. Um, I found this newspaper article from Tennessee where um, they're talking about this um, integrated ball that took place. And this is, once again, this is a Tennessee newspaper article and they're talking about a mixed race ball so it was a government ball there was a lot of military and republican leaders there and the Rollins sisters are there and it's very scandalous because Lottie Rollins dances with a white man and there's this weird joke about these black republican um, office holders squabbling over a pickled pig's foot they wanted to present to Lottie you know just blatant racist tropes um but it this article ends with, if there are any of our Tennessee radical friends who believe that reconstruction has hastened too slowly in this state, we advise them to immigrate to South Carolina. So South Carolina is seen Sorry. nationally. It's crazy. It's like, it's insane. So the press basically is just adding fuel onto the fire 
at this point. Oh, definitely. And South Carolina is a national point of interest. Like there are people coming in and out of South Carolina, you know, just to see what is going on in South Carolina because it's a majority black state. Um, and the Republicans have amassed a lot of power there. Um, so yeah, I mean, the thing, the, the, the things written in newspaper articles at this time are just outlandish. Do we know what, uh, what the North was saying at the time? Yeah. So I have this other really great, um, newspaper article that is an interview with, um, the, the, with Lottie and Kate because this newspaper reporter comes down and he says, um, strange things have come to pass in the Palmetto States such that if the Calhouns, Pinckneys, Retts, and others of the bygone plantation noblists could be permitted to rise from their graves, would send them back to the shades with their samats folded around their faces in horror and disbelief of the possibility of black folks. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and, you know, they do this whole interview with Lottie and Kate. That's basically like, wow, look how crazy this is. South Carolina is allowing black women to be this involved in their politics. Um, the newspaper article. And then once again, this is from New York. This is the New York Herald. Um, refers to South Carolina as the, this unhappy state because, um, um, what they say, Negroes do nine, nine twelfths of the voting in the Republican party in this unhappy state. Um, so it's receiving North and South white people are fascinated and different levels of horrified at the amount of political power black Americans in South Carolina have amassed. So let's go back to the sisters and tell us what kind of changes did they make? So, I mean, I know we've just spoken about some integration balls and things like that and marriages and things, but what else did they do? Right. So um, to go back in time a little bit before Frances gets to Columbia, Frances's sort of crowning achievement in her life that she's most proud of is that in 1867, she boards a steamship in South Carolina and with a first class ticket, once again, noting her elite status, um, and she is denied access to the first class cabin by its white captain. Um, and she is understandably humiliated and outraged gets off the boat and decides to take this um captain to court um in the beginning you know i mentioned that they're under this military district and that general dan sickles is in command he has enacted general order number 32 which has an explicit provision that um prevents discrimination on public transportation based on color or caste. So Francis takes W.T. McNulty to a military court, um, which was in downtown Charleston, and, you know, says that he denied me access based on my race, and she wins her court case. 
he gets fined $250, which in 2019 was equal to $4,500. Um, and this gets, yeah, yeah, she's awesome. That a little backstory. This is also where she meets Martin R. Delaney during the course of this trial. And he is so impressed by her resolve and what an intelligent woman she is that he asks her to write his biography. Um, and she, in her, um, late in her life, she writes that she's very, very proud that her case was quote, so startling that for years it wrinkled the bosoms of many of the railroad conductors and steamboat cap- captains. Um, so that was Francis's first big contribution to Reconstruction. She um, remembered it as the first civil rights case after the Civil War. I actually found, unfortunately, Francis, I did find a woman who had a similar case in San Francisco on a um, Oh, what are those town car? No, what are they? The trolley on a trolley. Um, so sorry, Francis, but definitely the first one in the South. Um, so that is Francis. So fast forward the clock to 1869, and this is by far my favorite Rollins sister story. So at this point, they're all living in Columbia. Francis and William are married. And William is the head of the Judiciary Committee of South Carolina's legislature. The Judiciary Committee puts forward a bill that would enfranchise women. And now remember, Whipper has been trying to enfranchise women since 1868. And so now he's put forward this bill that says that women should be enfranchised. So the legislature says, okay, the the Judiciary Committee needs to make a report on this bill. What? What does this bill mean? Explain what you're talking about. And the Judiciary Committee refuses to make a report. So then the legislature comes back and says, well, you have to make a report. You have to explain what you're talking about. So the Judiciary comes back and says, okay, but we need the whole floor. We need the whole room to carry out our um, meeting of, you know, our report. And so basically what happens is they all of a sudden have an impromptu committee of the whole where the the legislature, everyone who was there that day in the legislature, is sitting in this room. And instead of Whipper getting up, Lottie Rollin gets up. So now they're standing in the legislature and there's a black woman instead of her brother-in-law. And she gets up and she makes this really clever argument for why women should be enfranchised. She says that the South Carolina Constitution um, does not define voter as male and that the intent of the scope, the, the intent of that scope in the Constitution does not define sex. It's unknown to the Constitution. Therefore, women actually have the, as much a right to vote as men. So she says, we don't need to make a new law. The issue is that the provisions of the Constitution need to be properly enforced by appropriate legislature. And then she just sort of walks out. Oh, I love her. She's amazing. Um, so this is sort of Lottie's first big moment and sort of the moment that she enters the suffrage movement. I'm... 
I want to know what happens to the sisters, but I'm concerned you might give me some bad news. Well, so there, there is some bad news. So the sisters start this dynamic, interesting, but it's important to note, very small suffrage movement in South Carolina. They get some interesting things accomplished in the way of publicizing women's enfranchisement. Um, Lottie ends up getting a different speech that she made recorded in the comprehensive history of women's suffrage, which is created by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, which is even more interesting because the suffrage movement in South Carolina actually aligns itself with the rival group of Stanton and Anthony that's founded by Lucy Stone. But regardless, it's really exciting because Lottie makes a speech to a women's rights convention about why women should be enfranchised. It gets recorded in Stanton and Anthony's version of the history of women's suffrage, which goes on to become sort of the definitive history of women's suffrage. And Lottie is only the second black woman to be recorded in that book, the first being Sojourner Truth. So that's sort of, I would say, Lottie's biggest accomplishment, most interesting accomplishment. And so that that speech is made in 1870. In 1872, Lottie represents South Carolina at a national suffrage conference, which is also super exciting. She was the only representative. It's very symbolic that they chose a black woman to be the representative of South Carolina. Lottie really represents, you know, at that point, what the Republicans are hoping is the future of South Carolina. Educated black women, um, you know, she's the representative of what a successfully reconstructed South Carolina would be. So that's 1872. William Whipper in the Senate, um, excuse me, in the House of Representatives, the legislative body, tries one more time to get a women's um, enfranchisement bill passed in 1872 with their other Republican allies. It gets voted down, and then the Rollins sisters just kind of vanish. Um, Kate dies in 1868, and Frances, Frances lives, and she lives until 1901, and she and William end up having sort of a tension-filled marriage. They stay together, but they move back and forth between D.C. and South Carolina, um, there's kind of a lot of chaos in their relationship. She dies in Beaufort in 1901. She's in her early 50s, and she very much looks at her life as a disappointment. She's very, she writes that she counts herself among those who never reached the mark they had in sight, which I made the thesis, the title of my thesis. Um, That's pretty sad. It's, it is really sad, and her writing at the end of her life shows she was very proud of what her sisters and her husband were able to accomplish, but that, you know, she's lived to see the backlash against Reconstruction, and she sort of just fizzles out and is very disappointed, um, which is just heartbreaking because she had so much potential, so did her sisters. Um, and then Lottie is a little bit of a mystery. Um, Their family biographer, so a descendant of their family, says that she moved to Brooklyn 
with her mother and her younger sisters. I was never able to find any records of her in Brooklyn, but I mean, we're talking about 18, 19th century censuses. It's not shocking I wasn't able to find records of her there, but she, at the very least, drops out of activism. She's no longer involved in the suffrage movement. Um, and there's a very specific reason for that. None of this is a coincidence. As early as 1871, Lottie is already writing or excuse me, in, in an interview, she's saying she and her sisters are already nervous about the Ku Klux Klan because they know that white South Carolinians and nationally white Democrats are very, very unhappy with the idea of well-educated, outspoken Black women. So even by 18, yeah, 1871, she's already very nervous about the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and I mean, her sister is involved in an assassination attempt on the governor and you know they know that they are targets for violence just like so many other outspoken black women in the american south so there's a very specific reason why they disappear from activism it's dangerous you've mentioned the ku klux klan and you've mentioned that earlier actually uh, especially when we talk about newly freed women. So how can we compare these, like, badass sisters to newly freed women? Yeah, so this is personally sort of the crux of my research, of comparing elite experience of Black women to the experience of the much more representative group, freed women. Um, they were different, let me tell you. <laughs> Freed women in South Carolina, they viewed politics in a very different way. For freed women, enfranchisement and voting was held very sacred. It was very important to their community, but it was viewed as a community project. So freed women are not joining women's suffrage campaigns. That's not to say they aren't active in politics. They are going with their husbands, their fathers, their brothers to Republican Party meetings. They're going to polling stations with their husbands. They are, um, they are holding their husbands' guns outside of Republican meetings in order to protect the proceedings of the meeting on the inside from white Democrats who would like to break up the meeting. They are, um, attending meetings when their husbands are working. And I think what's another important thing to remember is newly free women didn't have the time and resources to be testifying in the state legislature like Lottie was, which is amazing, but that's not a representative experience. Freed women worked every day, dusk till dawn, you know, just because they're no longer enslaved doesn't mean that they didn't still have to work under brutally harsh conditions in order to provide for their family. But on top of doing all that, they are also making a concerted effort to join politics. And it looks very, very, very different than the way that the Rollins sisters are joining. You know, I found plantation ledgers that, you know, freed women were then, um, now being paid and many of them were still working for the same people who had enslaved them and many of them were doing the exact same job they were just now having to be paid for their work 
for labor. And I found plantation ledgers that would say, you know, um, Bob and Shirley are missed work today, went to public and meeting. So if you want to talk about comparing the enslaved versus the freed experience, while they're still doing the same backbreaking labor, women are leaving work to go to a political meeting with their husband. Um, and they are carving out space in their lives to become involved in politics, not through their own enfranchisement and through casting ballots, but in a more community-oriented way. Cappy, this has been an absolute eye-opener in what's been happening in South Carolina uh, post-Civil War in the 19th century. Thank you so much for joining us and telling us all about Roland Sisters and the amazing things that they got up to and unfortunately the sad ending that they had to give up all because of the silly men in the silly hats. Oh, in the, in this case, it's silly men in silly red shirts. Okay, silly men in silly red shirts. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm still going to keep that in my mind. Silly men with the silly hats, but they'll be the silly men with Absolutely. the red shirts. Absolutely. It's still the same red. It's just a little different. Exactly. Anyway, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Join us tomorrow. Halloween is coming up and we thought we'd do something a little bit creepy. So Melissa DeVelvis dropped in to talk all about people in the Victorian era and their obsession with death and mourning. And actually we found out they're not really quite as creepy as we are. So join us for that. We'll be talking about both sides of the, the Atlantic as well. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,